0: As we continue our series on Covenant Theology, we're coming towards a conclusion, uh, but the last few weeks I think are going to be the most exciting, So, at least for some of you. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. Let me recap where we've come from and where we're going so that we keep this overall picture in mind here. We're considering Covenant Theology as the framework of God's redemption, and two weeks ago, we narrowed things down after spending a few weeks on defining what it means that covenant theology is a the framework of God's redemption. Two weeks ago, we looked at the covenant of redemption. How it all began, at least from a um, time standpoint, in eternity, in God's plan to save a people. We consider this as the eternal blueprint for the outworking of redemption in history. And We saw from various texts in Scripture that our covenant-making God enters into an inter-Trinitarian covenant among the members of the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now last week... As we now move towards this is the covenant of redemption or I should say the plan of redemption in eternity, we're now moving towards how does this plan enter history? And what does this mean? And why is it important? And so we consider the covenant of works. The covenant of works as we talked about is the covenant that God entered into with Adam at creation. Adam, who represented all humanity. He is our federal head as human beings. He acted on behalf of the entire human race. Adam, as we saw from the opening chapters of Genesis, was required in this covenant to follow the pattern set forth by his Creator. This is entailed in being made in the image of God. If you are blessed with that image of God, you are called to live in accordance with it. To live up to that name that you have been given. Adam was promised eschatological life. This was the goal of Sabbath rest that was put before him. If he, was, if he obeyed, he would have entered God's rest as God entered into His rest. And this would have been everlasting permanent life in the sense of he could never fall from that position that's what that was the promise of the covenant works but of course everlasting death was threatened upon his disobedience which of course is what happened and what we saw and so we really kind of wrap this up by considering how this covenant lays the groundwork. It calls for a righteous and holy human servant to fulfill the stipulations of God's law and the reality of being made in the image of God. It's calling for this holy and righteous human servant. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, of course, conquered. And we move to why the covenant of works is important. And I'm Recapping this because it really is important. I mentioned this last week. The idea of the covenant of works is one of the most important, I believe, doctrines in Scripture. Because it explains so much about who we are as humans and it explains so much about the Gospel and its contrast with the law. Why is it important? Well, it explains human nature's Natural self-righteousness. Why we have a guilty conscience when we sin. Why even pagans and atheists alike think that God will be pleased with them if they obey. And they can work righteousness with their own hands. Work salvation with their own hands. Good deeds outweigh the bad deeds kind of idea. This is ingrained in human nature. The covenant of works is why. It explains that. But it also explains why salvation is now out of our hands. Why it's impossible for us to work that righteousness. The covenant works has been broken. We need another to come and fulfill it. It also helps us properly distinguish between law and gospel. Which is kind of what I just hinted at. Our doing versus God's doing. It's important as well because it sets the stage for the second Adam, a righteous servant to come and accomplish where Adam failed. So it explains for us why Jesus did what he did. It gives us this context, this framework in which to understand the person and work of Christ. And if you remember my argument, my argument was why wasn't Jesus slaughtered as an infant at the hand of Herod's sword when Herod tried to? Why couldn't He just died then for our sins? Why did He have to live a full life? What's the purpose of that? Why did He have to be tempted out in the wilderness by Satan? Why did He have to be baptized by John the Baptist? Because He had to fulfill the covenant of works in a spiritual sense. The setting has changed. He was no longer in Eden, but the reality of living up to the image of God and walking in conformity to God's law and, and obtaining a Sabbath rest, Hebrews 4, he has entered that rest and we will enter as well um, through him. That, that, all of that reality is why he lived and why he obeyed and why he was baptized to fulfill righteousness. So the covenant works shows us that our salvation is not just hanging in midair, but is attached and comes in the context, a structure. Um, all of Christ's works come in the structure of how God originally made the world. So, any questions on this before we move forward? If you've been thinking about it this week, or any other clarification needed before we move forward? Speak now, forever hold your peace. Is that coffee ever going to come? <laughs> okay. We got a new percolator and the old one, if you started at nine, it was ready right at 930, but this one apparently you got to start sooner. So, No questions on the covenant of works, so this is all good. I hope so. If you have questions, come to me privately, because this is, a, again, a very important doctrine. And I'm not just going to give you answers. I'm to, I, w- I would hope to show you where in Scripture this is supported so that you can study it for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Trent? I was just going to ask if there's like any other alternate views or controversy with the specific version of the covenant of works within like, the form. Yeah, absolutely there are. Um, certain theologians have rejected it. Uh, because it's, human beings can never merit or earn anything before God. Um, Because Adam was called, uh, John Piper has argued, Adam was called the faith, not obedience. So he makes a contrast between that. Um, Of course, Piper rejects covenant theology in general, so that's maybe not a reformed kind of intramural perspective there. Um, and there's different views on what exactly the Covenant of Works means and how it to be, is to be interpreted. But by and large, it is adopted. It's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Of course, it's in our Confession of Faith. Um, and so from that strand of Reformed theology, it's, it's pretty uniform. There's just different variations on how they see it. I can recommend Getting the Garden Right by Richard Barcelos is a Phenomenal book on the Covenant of Works. It's, yeah. All right. The Covenant of Grace. That's what we're going to cover today. Man. Taking too long. We're going to start broad today. Um, I know some of you only have one more week left with us before summer break, so... We'll get to the really good stuff next week, so that means you better come back. Um, But we've got to start broad because some of you, you know, maybe don't know or can't define the covenant of grace, don't know exactly what we're talking about when we use that term. So we've got to start very broad and then narrow it down um, because this is really going to be our focus for the next few weeks. And I think we'll probably wrap up this series maybe in three weeks. So next week and the week after probably what we're looking at. But we're going to start with a broad definition. We're going to start um, kind of where it appears in Scripture in in a brief sense. Again, this is going to be something we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Um, And we're going to (coughs) conclude by thinking about how this covenant of grace enters history. And this is where it's going to get fun. We're going to look at Reformed Baptists versus Presbyterian views on the covenant of grace. and We're going to look at how it's related to the covenants in Scripture. And as we go along, you will see why it's important. Up to this point, by and large, Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists are in full agreement. But they differ sharply here at the covenant of grace, and this is why They have different views on baptism. Do we baptize those who profess faith or do we baptize those who profess faith as well as the infant children of believers? That's the question, ultimately, that we're going to get at. So let's start broadly. What is the covenant of grace? Well, just think with me here. I'm going to put a lot of this up on the PowerPoint so that you can just kind of read and follow along. Just think of the opening chapters of Genesis. Adam sins. The Lord of the Covenant comes to judge his servant for his rebellion in the covenant of works. That's what it means when the Scriptures say that um, the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Are you familiar with that phrase in Genesis? He's looking for Adam. Well, I believe the best translation, there's some great work on this, is that um, this is the, the, the spirit coming in judgment. It's not the cool of the day, which really makes no sense. Uh, the, the word there is, is spirit. God is coming in spirit the day of judgment. He's coming to seek out Adam and, and, and confront him for his breaking of the covenant of works. But during this judgment, this curse, we read in Genesis 3.15, God say this, In the midst of giving a curse, speaking to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy, which is in actuality a promise. God will send a seed of the woman, who will be bruised by the serpent, but will ultimately crush the serpent's head. Of course, this language is picked up in the rest of Scripture. And we know that that seed of the woman is referring to Jesus Christ. The bruising by the serpent refers to the crucifixion. And the crushing of His head represents the resurrection and, of course, the full and final conquering victory that Christ will win over Satan at the last day. This is why this verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel the first preaching the first pronouncing of the gospel in human history in this kind of obscure prophecy god promises that Satan sin the curse will not have the last word already we can see this covenant of redemption coming into play remember god's blueprint blueprint for salvation This promise to become incarnate and to rescue and save a people and to die for their sins. Made in eternity, now we get the first glimpse of it right here in history. So, theologians have identified Genesis 3.15 as the beginning of the covenant of grace. It begins here because the covenant of works had to be broken first. This is how sinners fallen in Adam might be saved. Through belief in God's promise, the seed of the woman, the Savior. There's that question of, well, was Adam a Christian? I believe he was. He calls Eve the mother of the living. It's this idea. He sees and he believes God's promise that the living one will come from her womb. Eve as well. She... um, After Abel dies, it's when she has Seth, I believe, is when she says, Behold, God has given me um, a child. I can't remember off the top of my head. But again, we see this idea that she recognizes, she thought that this seed of the woman would come from her. And she has Seth and anticipates that. This is faith. She believes God's promise. Adam believed God's promise. This is the beginning of the covenant of grace. And so to define this, the covenant of grace is a way of speaking about the one covenant through which all believers in all of history are saved. I'm going to break that down a little bit more and then give you a chance for questions. Think back here for a second. If we have established that God deals with us by way of covenant. That covenant defines our relationship to Him. That's in creation, the covenant of works. The new covenant, we see that of course, the new covenant in my blood. If we have kind of Seeing that, how was salvation then possible after Adam's sin? How might Adam and those after him find reconciliation with God? By belief in the promised one to come. And this promised one to come comes in the context of a covenant. A covenant of redemption to send Christ. The new covenant, this is the new covenant in my blood through which you have forgiveness of sins, Jesus tells us. And so this gets at the idea of a covenant of grace. I put this down here so I wouldn't forget. See, this, this is kind of my notes. The ice cream analogy, I used this a few weeks ago. Um, you have 14 students in line at a carnival to get ice cream. And you have one chaperone, for lack of a better term. And... Um, He says, go get ice cream, and they stand in line, and the chaperone is the one who's paying. And the first seven come and ask for their ice cream, and they say, he's going to pay. And they point to their chaperone, and then he comes and he pays. And then the next seven come, and they say, he paid, because the chaperone paid for all 14. Kind of analogy of Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, children of God, believers, were saved through their belief in the one to come. He will come and pay for my sin. That's my hope and my trust. That's my righteousness. In the New Covenant, New Testament, we see that He has come. And we can say, He has paid for my sin. That is my hope and my righteousness. So the covenant of grace gets at the idea that there is one way of salvation. In fact, this is kind of... Let me me explain exactly what I mean by that. The covenant of grace is a theological concept. It's not a word that's found in Scripture. But it is a way of speaking about how believers of all time are saved through God's covenant of salvation with man. This is seen most clearly in the new covenant, and it's what we're going to consider here in a moment. This is covenant of salvation. And so there's two central truths that are at the heart of the covenant of grace. There's one way of salvation, and all believers of all time are unified as the one people of God in this salvation. Let me briefly explain this. There is one way of salvation. We see this in Galatians 3.6 and following. Romans 4.3 and following. Abraham, Paul makes the argument, was justified by faith. He was justified the same way that the Galatians and the Romans were justified and you and I were justified. The covenant of grace gets at the heart of that one way of salvation. We see in Romans 4, 6 and following that David was justified by faith through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though David lived long before Christ ever came and obeyed and died. It is by grace, through faith, in the Messiah, either the Messiah to come Or the Messiah who has come, which is the only way anybody has ever been saved. So this covenant of grace gets at the heart of that. This is different than some forms of dispensationalism and other forms. Well, Old Testament believers were justified by works, but New Testament believers were justified by faith. Um, and there's Socinians and other Anabaptists who also had different forms of this as well. The covenant of grace really strikes at the heart of that. Old Testament, New Testament, there's one way of salvation. Another truth that underlies this covenant is that all believers of all time are unified as the one people of God. All believers are in the same covenant with God. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 11 here. It's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. By faith they conquered. By faith Moses. By faith Abraham. By faith Samson. (laughs) Um, All of these believers who conquered by faith and bear witness to their faith. Think of how it concludes at the end of that chapter. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They did not see the Messiah. That's what it means. They didn't see the Messiah. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The point being is that we are made perfect. We are saved. Salvation has come to all of us together as the one people of God. Apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This gets at the heart of how all the promises of God to both Jew and Gentile in both Old Testament and New Testament are, as Paul says, yes and amen in Christ. Again, this gets at kind of the heart of dispensationalism. I keep saying that. Gets at the heart, gets at the heart. I'm sorry about that. Um, I'll look for better terminology. Gets at the root of... (laughs) 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 Dispensationalism will say, okay, there's promises to Jews in the Old Testament. There's promises to Gentiles in the New Testament. They differ. There's different tracts, different plans. covenant of grace flows out of the belief that all believers of all time are unified as the one people of God because Jesus Christ is the true Israel not Israel the nation and Jew and Gentile alike are united to that true Israel The true promises, all the Old Testament promises, and receive those through faith in Christ and union with Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, good. We've got plenty of time. See, I've been, because I want to get to the good stuff. All right. Let's get a little bit more specific here. Any questions at this point? Comments? Give me a break from talking, Cody. Let me take another six weeks of Sunday school. (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was not promised in the covenants. It's a promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 37, I will put my spirit within you. The Old Testament saints do not have the spirit, which, of course, gets at why we're Baptists. This covenant is new, it's different, it's better. Um, It's not the same, which we're about to talk about. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament worked sporadically. Uh, He would come and go, particularly in the kings of Israel, the judges of Israel, in order to save Israel um, in an external sense. David prays in Psalm 51, Do not let your Holy Spirit depart from me. Um, But in the New Testament, there is a permanent indwelling. Indwelling. And now that's not to say that he wasn't active in the Old Testament. He was active in regeneration in the Old Testament. Must be born again. But um, not a permanent pouring out in dwelling that is promised in the New. Even Michael Horton argues in his book that in the New Testament, there is a quantitative and qualitative difference in the pouring out of the Spirit. Not only in greater quantity, Uh, I've heard it before, like a faucet. You know, in the Old Testament, it's a drip. The Holy Spirit, but in the New Testament, it's a you know fire hydrant of pouring out. That's a good analogy, but it's not only just qualitative. It's also qualitative. There's something new that has happened at Pentecost, something um, unprecedented, first time in history. And so um, that's probably the best way I can begin. I can point you to some resources. I think Horton's chapter on it is really really good in his book. Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. John, do you have a question? Okay. Do I see a hand? Don't scratch your face, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get more specific. Let's go to our confession. We're trying to define the covenant of grace here, okay? So, in 7.2... Chapter 7, paragraph 2, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says that man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, he's broken the covenant of works, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they might be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. That's the covenant of grace. He offers salvation. He calls us to have faith in Him. And He promises to give eternal life, the Holy Spirit, to help us and make us willing and able to believe. And it goes on in paragraph 3. It is alone, by the grace of this covenant, that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved, did obtain life in blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in the state of his inno- innocency. You see, this summarizes what I've just tried to teach you. Alone by the grace of this covenant, all believers, all children of Adam, because they're un- incapable of, of obtaining acceptance with God based upon the original terms of our creation, the covenant of works. That doesn't stop man from trying. I will work salvation with my hands. Roman Catholic Church is one big example of that. So, the Confession Asserts, it pleased God to make a covenant of grace. I love how it uses that language. It's out of God's love and good pleasure for us. That's the root of it It pleased Him. It's something that delighted Him to save fallen sinners. It's just astounding. He, He delights to save rebellious traitors. But that's the abundance of God's love for us. And this promise comes with life and salvation in the Spirit. The condition is faith, and all of the children of Adam are saved by it. So that's the definition of the covenant of grace. We've got 10 minutes, so let's try to answer, turn towards where this really matters. The question remains. Up to this point, all forms of covenant theology, for the most part, agree. Some forms of dispensationalism and new covenant theology also agree. And we're talking agree in general, but the differences here are. Going to ask a series of questions to bring this out. How does this covenant of grace appear in the Old Testament? How is it administered? That is given and brought about by God to his people in the Old Testament. How is it administered? In human history. A promise that is administered. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like Covenant College. They have a faculty that administers an education. Right? How is it related to the various Old Testament covenants? The covenant with Noah, the Abraham, Abraham, Moses, and David specifically. How is the covenant of grace related to these covenants? And of course, thus, how is it administered now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament as well? So, you see what I'm getting at here? How does this covenant enter history? First in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to look at for the next two weeks. How does the covenant of grace enter history? And this is key, and it affects a number of things, but most specifically for our purposes, this is the key difference that lies at the heart of who is to be baptized. Infant baptism flows out of covenant theology. Now, it doesn't for the Roman Catholic Church, because for the Roman Catholic Church, infant baptism washes away original sins, and then allows you to, through, the, through their sacraments, um, uh, uh, work... Grace up for yourself and be saved with the help of God. So, in in infant baptism, in other traditions, Anglican um, tradition doesn't flow out of covenant theology per se. It flows out of the belief that baptism saves. So if you baptize an infant, that infant is a believer. They're a Christian. Um, But I'm talking about in Reformed and Protestant and um, Evangelical churches. This is the key difference on who is to be baptized. It lies in the answer of how does it in- enter the covenant of grace into history. that make sense? You guys cracking with me? This is interesting, right? Okay. So we're going to conclude with comparing the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a um, confession of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC, and the PCA versus the 1689 Confession. And I want you, if you know the history here, uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession was framed and, and written after the Westminster Confession. It was written many years later, but um, it's almost identical. Uh, the Baptists adopted much of the language. It's almost a mirror image. Of probably, you know, eighty, ninety percent of it is word for word of the Westminster Confession. And one reason they did this is because they're saying, "Hey, we agree with everything they they said, except for these small differences here, and stop persecuting us." Um, <laughs> which is, you know, ultimately took a while, but ultimately stopped happening. But Let's compare here. 7 chapter 7 paragraph 5 of the Westminster Confession. This covenant, this covenant of grace, right? That's what we're talking about. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and that is called the Old Testament. Sounds pretty good. Look at what the Baptists, how they changed this paragraph. In chapter 7, paragraph 2. This covenant is revealed. There is a difference between administered and revealed. This covenant is revealed in the Gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And afterwards, by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the Old Testament... And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. And so on. What does this mean? The Westminster Confession sees the historical covenants Adam excuse me um, Abraham, Noah, Moses, David as the covenant of grace being administered to God's people and it goes on to say in the following paragraph there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance but one in the same under various dispensations now forget the first part of that sentence just because they're responding to a particular historical belief at the time. But this last statement, one covenant of grace under various dispensations. You see that? The covenant of grace is the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant of grace is the Mosaic covenant. The covenant of grace is the new covenant. That's what they're saying. Different window dressing... It's kind of like, I don't know, um, Windows software. You know, you have Windows 95, Windows 98, Windows XP, Win- all this, all these other, Windows 7, Windows 8. I don't even know where they're at now. But you have the same basic software. But you have all these different versions of it. And sometimes the versions look very differently, but they're still Windows, Right? and it's still made by the same company, and it's for the same purposes. That's what they're saying about the covenant of grace. The Abrahamic is one version, but then God changed, in a sense, the version, the administration, and the mosaic, and changed it in the new covenant, but it's all the same covenant. Just hang with me, I know. Just hang with me here. So they see it as historical covenants of the covenant of grace. The historical covenants being the covenant of grace differently administered. Baptists see the historical covenants as the covenant of grace being revealed. Revealed, not administered. It is the new covenant in Christ's blood that is the only true and proper covenant of grace. It's the only covenant that offered forgiveness of sins. It's the only covenant that offered eternal life. It's the only covenant that offered the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the only covenant with Christ as a mediator. It's the only covenant with a priesthood of Jesus Christ instead of a Levitical priesthood based upon genealogy in Old Testament Israel. And so that's the difference. There is a covenant of grace being administered and then a covenant of grace being revealed, consummated in the new covenant. Now let's break this down a little bit more. The Westminster Confession sees the historical covenants as setting the pattern for the covenant of grace. Now follow me here. If the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant... If the Abrahamic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant are administrations of the Covenant of Grace, then it teaches us about the structure and pattern of the Covenant of Grace. If the Abrahamic Covenant included not only adults, but male infants, they often say children of believers, infants, well, it was males, not males and females, not all children, but male infants. Uh, As a Baptist, I just feel the need to emphasize that. If the Abrahamic covenant included infants, and it is an administration of the covenant of grace, then every other administration of the covenant of grace must include children as well. Because that's the pattern. So even though the New Testament doesn't speak about including infants into the covenant because they were included in the previous administration, it has to be included in the subsequent administration. It's like saying, well, yeah, the, uh, the Windows 95, um, you know, had whatever pop up windows, <laughs> whatever this particular feature. That means every other f- feature after that has to have it. Otherwise, it's not truly Windows. Baptists, in contrast, see the New Covenant as an outworking of the Covenant of Redemption as the only proper pattern for the Covenant of Grace. We can look to Abraham as a pattern in Moses, or we can look at the Covenant of Redemption in the New Covenant as a pattern. That's the difference right there. If we look to Abraham and Moses as a pattern, we're going to include children and we're going to baptize them. If we look at the covenant of redemption and the new covenant in Christ's blood as a pattern, we're going to come to different conclusions. So again, to sum this up, the Westminster sees all the historical covenants as essentially the same. But Baptists see the historical covenants as related historically, related typologically, I'm going to spend next week breaking that down, related historically and uh, typologically to the covenant of grace, but as substantially different covenants. Which is what we believe the author of Hebrews is saying. There is a new and better covenant. Not like the covenant of old. So why would you base... Covenant membership on the old, which is an inferior covenant that has passed away. That's my plug to come back next week. (laughs) Administered or revealed? Does the Abrahamic covenant administer the covenant of grace or does it point to the coming covenant of grace? that will be sealed in Christ's blood. That's, that's the difference right there. So we can take three minutes for questions. Um, hold on, do I have anything else? I can't remember. Nope, I, don't, I do. Yeah, here we go. Questions here. Um, three minutes uh, for questions or comments. And if you disagree, you can state those as well. I see a few of you smiling back there. <laughs> Luke. What do you mean? Like when they see old covenant? What does it mean? It means a pre- previous administration of the covenant of grace. Um, like where? A covenant, right? A old covenant, or is it? So like. Well, you know, it's funny you say that, um, because, and I'm not going to get into this, but this. Paragraph is kind of confusing. Yeah, that's where, that's where I saw that, um, that. Because it talks about under the law and then under the gospel. And it really doesn't deal with Abraham, which is previous to the law. Um, and so they're not entirely clear in the confession. But what they meant, which is evidenced by, of course, their other writings and subsequent Reformed history... Um, There is, well, what they meant, there's different views on that. Um, Some see the Mosaic Covenant as a recapitulation of the Covenant of Works, which is our position. But at its substance, it really is for the purposes of the Covenant of Grace. Some see it as purely a Covenant of Grace, which is why they bring really good works into the New Covenant because the Mosaic Covenant has such a demand for obedience, and they apply those in our age as well, and they talk about being being able to fall away and things of that nature. Uh, So there's differences within Reformed camps, or Presbyterian camps, on the question of the role of the Old Covenant. But they all agree that it is, in some sense, an administration of the covenant of grace. Even if it has a works element, it's fulfilling the same, administering those promises. And think with me again, too. If you have God administering the covenant on an external sense, where you could be a member of the covenant and not a true believer, it makes sense why they do the same thing in the new covenant. You can be a member of the church, you can be baptized and not really a true believer, because that's because Israel as a nation is kind of the pattern that they pull into the New Testament. Instead of a spiritual people that we believe, they argue for more of a physical people. Ultimately. Questions? Comments? Come on. I've been talking for a long time. Kim? You told it towards the end there when you said that Essentially the same. Um, I, I guess I'm a little confused as to what is it what is the strong argument against that. I'm hmm. not sure I can offer that answer that off the top of my head. John, do you have an answer for that? Because, well just everything if you go back to Genesis three fifteen and say that's the announcement of the gospel, right? Yeah. Then everything after that is essentially New and better. New and better. Yeah. The gospel. And and yeah, it, it unfolds. Often there's this analogy of like a, a flower blossom unfolding in stages, yep. but it's still the flower blossom. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So there's a, You can say when it's fully expended, it's better. Yep. It's newer, it's better, it's no yep. longer bud, it's now. Yep. yep. And we agree with that. Yeah. Um, in, uh, the classic analogy by Voss is the acorn, you know? Yeah, the acorn. There's an acorn that, that, that uh, blossoms into a full grown oak tree. Okay. But it's the same acorn. There's an organic unity. And we agree with that. Uh, But we believe that that progress of growth um, is typological and pointing, revealing what is to come rather than the actual reality of that come as if the the oak tree was present in Genesis 3.15 itself. Sophie? Uh, They would also say it's better because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. In presence of the Holy Spirit, yes. And it's not based upon the law. Um, uh, like the Old Testament, Old Covenant was. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's different things that they would say that it's better. Um, yeah. All right, we got we to wrap this up. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, if you have questions, you can uh, write them on one of these cards up here. And I'm going to get to them next week because we're going to break this down more next week. Let's pray.